In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this Friday edition of the True Life Podcast. We are here with an amazing individual, someone who has hit the ground running. If you're on LinkedIn, you probably see him making a few posts a day, and you've probably read some of his stuff, and you're probably excited to talk to him just like I am. Mr. Cole Butler, how are you, my friend? Very well, George. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Feeling good. Beautiful day in Colorado, so great energy today. Yeah, it is a beautiful day. And so for people that may not know you, can you tell them a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm pretty involved in the psychedelic space here in Colorado. Uh, I'm in Fort Collins, a beautiful area. Um, Let's see. I mostly work at Wholeness Center. So currently my main job is coordinating the MMED 008 study, which is an LSD for anxiety clinical trial. Uh, Super excited to be a part of that. Um, I was actually just left, but I was um, a part of the MDMA for PTSD clinical trials with MAPS as well. Uh, So as a backup study coordinator on the phase three trial, and then also uh, coordinated MT1, the therapist training study. Um, other than that, it's just like a lot of random little things going on. Uh, I do ketamine therapy groups. Uh, technically I'm in a master's program, but you know, do a little bit of that. Um, yeah, I'm an intern. Let's see. I write grants, try to do research stuff, try to do therapy, like to go outside. I could probably dive into any one of these things, but just trying to give the broad picture of kind of what I have going on right now. So yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. I want to talk about all of them. And let's start off with the LSD and anxiety. Like, how does that, before we talk about like some of the results on it, tell us how you got involved in that. Yeah, so Wholeness Center has been a site for the MAPS trials for about four or five years now. Uh, We were one of the first sites 
Um, and really, I mean, I don't know how far to go back here, but I've wanted to work for MAPS for a long time, been wanting to be involved in psychedelic research for a long time. I was doing uh, research coordination work before and have my degree in psychology. So anyway, yeah, so came to Colorado, um, reached out to an organization called Prodi. Uh, which is a psychedelic research training institute. They do ketamine therapy trainings, uh, one of which I've also done. Through them, I got hooked up with um, the MAPS people down in Boulder, which eventually led to the MAPS people here in Fort Collins. Uh, started working on those projects. Um, and yeah, so basically, since I was involved with them and we were a site for the MAPS clinical trials, uh, MindMed reached out to us and said, hey, we want you to be a site for our LSD for anxiety study. And we were like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> so <laughs> I've wanted to work professionally with LSD for a really long time. It's kind of been one of my professional goals. Um, and yeah, pretty much found out that there's 20 different sites um, and they wanted us to come on board. We're kind of one of the last ones to come on. So we're very much in the early stages of like setting everything up. We haven't even started enrolling yet, but yeah. So yeah, we had all the right history, all the right things. And they wanted us to be a site. We said yes. And now we're doing it. Congratulations on achieving. I, I always find it very rewarding, whether it's myself that does it or somebody I'm talking to or somebody I know that sets goals and then accomplishes them or gets really close to them. Like I, I feel that it's, um, it is contagious and I, I like being around it. So thank you for coming on and talking about that. You know, there's yeah. a, I think you, I think you recently posted, um, some stuff about which, which fits into what we're talking about the ICPR and the recent basal study with LSD and anxiety is, right. is, can you talk a little bit about that? And, and is what you're guys trying to do similar to what, what those results were found to be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my understanding is that the individuals there, I believe it was Peter Gasser and Matthias Slichty. Um, they are, I want to say, don't quote me on it, but scientific advisors or sort of scientific consultants for MindMed. Um, so if you look at the trial design for that study, it's very similar to ours, just in terms of timeline and how everything's conducted, looking at uh, anxiety. So uh, I believe MindMed was very much informed by the work that they did and has been working in collaboration with the people who ran that trial uh, to design the current phase 2B clinical trial that we are running now. Yeah. And do you, I don't want to maybe there's things that you can't divulge or whatever. So I wanted to put a, you know, you don't have to answer anything that, that is out there. Have you on this study? Are you, are you, is there a certain dosage? Are you trying different types of dosages or placebos, or is there some sort of literature that you've read that you think would be advantageous to the people in there? Like what, what does the setup look like that you could talk about? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of it's confidential, sure. you know, the, the protocol is confidential, right. so I don't want to put myself in a bad spot Absolutely. there. But, you know, there there's a lot of information that's come out from MindMed and press releases. Um, 
and you know just on the clinicaltrials.gov page that's public information so i can kind of speak to some of that stuff and then my own personal opinions and things that i've read on my own time uh so yeah so basically it is five different treatment arms so we're looking at randomly assigned to one of the five placebo 25 micrograms, 50 micrograms, 100 micrograms, and 200 micrograms. So it's a dose-finding study. Mm -hmm. So essentially, which dose works best? Um, there's no therapy involved, surprisingly. Uh, huh. It's just what we call dosing session monitors, which are, I like professional trip sitters, but <laughs> same thing. <laughs> our, our quaint language has been LSD, SM. So LSD <laughs> session monitor, but anyway, so I think, uh, I think that around a hundred micrograms is closer to the ideal dose. Um, and the literature supports that and that 200 is start to where you get extra anxiety symptoms, people get nervous. And so, uh, you know, the, the trial is to figure that out, you know, yeah. which, which dose is ideal. Um, I would say, I think that the sponsor believes around 100 micrograms might work best. Um, I think that too. I think anywhere from 100 to 150 seems to be the historical kind of range. And it also, you know, like a lot of the psychedelics, like, I don't want to say they have a soothing effect, but they get to this point and then it's like doing more isn't really going to help you, right? Like MDMA, you know, you want to take an amount maybe around 150 milligrams to 200, depending on your weight, where you're like really in a good space, but you take too much MDMA, you're going to get sick <laughs> and not have a good time. So, you know, just one of those, there's kind of a sweet spot and, and that's what the study is kind of trying to figure out. It's such an exciting time to, to be able to see these types of medicines being used to help people. And, and I know we should be, skeptical of panaceas but it seems like there's so much that can't so much good that can come out of it is there something that maybe you've seen in the world of lsd that you didn't expect to see as far as helping people well yeah as you say a few things there with being a panacea it's i want to address that first yeah it's like i don't know we should all be rational and absolutely we reasonable human beings. And I think that, you know, we shouldn't just give these to everybody all the time, unregulated, but, uh, but they're very powerful. And I've seen that with a lot of different psychedelic agents, we decided to work with ketamine as well. So I think, you know, for a lot of different conditions, there's broad sweeping effects. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is that it's so different from person to person, the experience that they're gonna have. So in terms of classifying the experiences, like this thing's gonna happen and then you're gonna get this result, it's it's hard to do. Um, and if you read some of Stan Groff's work on LSD mm. psychotherapy, he's done over 4,000 sessions um, as a therapist. But, you know, and he he's kind of got his way of conceptualizing it, but you read it and it's just like a manual of all the different things that can come up. And I don't know, there's just such a broad array of experiences 
that it's hard to say like it will work for this condition and then what even is like this condition and what does that mean and it varies from person to person so there's so much there uh, my personal sort of philosophy is that you need to build a container right a safe container for the psychedelic experience for somebody to feel safe to feel held to have that trust um, and also build in all these different elements of intentionality set and setting you know the environment understand their family history you know i think all of these things play in a lot to somebody getting the healing effect um, and being very intentional about their usage and seeing real life changes so you know, I've seen in some of my work and just observations, this is like a very important point, like all the different factors that also play into the experience um, and what the individual is going through and then what the psychedelic experience might show them, you know, it's going to be dependent on all of these things. So, yeah. Yeah. LSD is, there's so much interesting tangents we could go down. I think one yeah. one interesting one to me is, the idea that it was used to help people get off of alcohol, I think that was the inspiration for Alcohol Anonymous. So in a way, there's almost like a, a strange precedent set by it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's so much exciting work that happened, you know, back in the early, mid-1900s. And reading about the history is fascinating, you know, from Hoffman to Sandoz Pharmaceuticals to bill hicks with aa using it it's like so much exciting stuff happened and they were running those studies you know and we have that data um it's funny like if you look at the way science is done now versus how it was done 50 or 60 years ago it's so different you know it's like computers from 50 60 years ago you know what those even looked like they like barely <laughs> existed i would say probably at that point in time so i've read a lot of those original 70s studies and it's like very fascinating but there's so much like variability in the methods and things like that. There's like not a lot of careful organization and structure. So one of the things like it's kind of hilarious, but maybe not in a good way. I don't know. It's like in one of the studies, they strap people down to a metal table, like strapped down, Ooh. no music, no therapy. And they give them 800 micrograms of LSD. <laughs> And it's like, that is crazy. <laughs> that's a recipe for disaster. It sounds like. Yeah. So you see that, I mean, you see the positive results. It's hard to like, like basically combine them all into like one conclusion because there's so much difference in methodology, but uh, these guys, Johansson and Krebs, they wrote a meta-analysis of all of these studies in 2012. To describe all of this and so it's really great to reference if you kind of want to dive deeper into some of those effects um but yeah you know and then i i become very interested in the history of lsd as well being used by the cia and sort of the bad ways that it was used and how we think about you know what are all these factors what is the methodology being employed and how are bad actors using these in bad ways for things like brainwashing and mind control? Or how are you being very intentional about how you're setting up, you know, the experience to really facilitate somebody's healing? Because if you have the full force of the government, nobody's checking them, nobody's protecting these people, 
and then you drug them unwittingly, like you're gonna have a very bad experience, you know. <laughs> yep. Uh, versus if you really want to heal this person, you care about them, you set everything up right, you know, I think that that's where the real magic happens. Um, so that's really sort of my, my take on it these days is that you, there's so many different factors at play and set up the factors right and you're going to get a good experience. Yeah, that's well put. Talk about two different intentions from like the CIA to today's modern people trying to use it for therapy. You know, I, I think we've, we've all, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us have read the studies where they, they would, um, dose some gentlemen that were going into the house with like, uh, some, you know, like the cat house or whatever. And then like yeah. watch them through the one way mirror. There's the good Friday experiment. That's an interesting one to think about. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, uh, the story of, um, Ted Kaczynski. I mean, here's a yeah. mastermind. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're yeah, like, Oh so, yeah. George. Yeah. A lot going on with that one. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about all of the influence that LSD has had on our past and probably a lot that we don't even know about that has maybe influenced people or you, know, you got Francis Crick with the double helix and all these different people that have come up with ideas and, and maybe were able to see the world differently because they had tried these. I, mean, I guess you could call it a therapy back then as well. It's interesting yeah. to think about. What? Now... You were also involved with the MAPS study. Can you tell us about that study a little bit? I mean, up to, up to what you can? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so super fascinating. Love MAPS. Working with them was so awesome. You know, it's another one of those things that's delicate. I can't say I worked for them because I actually worked for these sites and they paid the sites. So I work for the sites, not for the sponsor. Uh, it's just important to clarify. But, you know, there's... 12 or 13 different sites on the MDMA trials. Um, and so I was originally at Boulder. Um, like I said, I came to Colorado, got involved with Prodi. And actually what happened was I had been applying to MAPS for like four years, or sorry, <laughs> one year, four times. <laughs> right. But I had met some of the people uh, that work for MAPS. Evan Sola, he's a a psychologist and researcher, really cool guy. I met him in Washington, D.C., and another guy named Jonathan Lubecki, uh, who is a veteran that was healed by the treatment. Very powerful story that guy has. He's awesome. Um, yeah, so I met those guys when I was working in Washington, D.C., in the surrounding area, just kind of trying to network and get involved in the space. That was, you know, a few years ago. Uh, and also met somebody on the board of directors, actually, Victoria Hale, got to see her speak as well and just was super excited, fascinated by the work. So I met them uh, and then my job wasn't really going well, uh, COVID and everything happened. And so I was just trying to apply, trying to get a job with MAPS and like nothing was happening. I was dropping these people's names. And then I moved to Colorado, met these people on Prodi. And as soon as I got on this call, it was a research call. Uh, these guys, Derek May and Scott Shannon are on the call. And they're the principal investigators at my current site at uh, Fort Collins at Holman Center. And Derek's like, well, I'm a PI at the Boulder site and we need a study coordinator. 
And that's exactly what I've been doing is being a study <laughs> coordinator. And I'm like, what? I'm like, this is a dream job. So I go on there. I apply. Uh, it's like, who referred you? I'm like, Derek May. And uh, yeah, so shortly thereafter, uh, I got in contact uh, with somebody and talked to them. It was a previous study coordinator. Uh, now she's a clinical trial leader. Um, Amanda Neri is her name. Uh, yeah, so she's a clinical trial leader for MAPS BBC now. Um, yeah, and then I got in contact with uh, Marcella Otolora, who is a pretty big name, I guess, in MAPS. Uh, she's, she's a pretty big deal, pretty close. Actually, my understanding is that she was kind of patient zero for MAPS because uh, she was friends with Rick Doblin. And before this was legalized, you know, she went through the treatment um, with uh, with Rick, actually. I hope I have all these facts correct. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it healed her trauma. And she decided to go to Naropa University down in Boulder and then set up a clinic right down the road. And uh, I'd heard her talking about how to become an MDMA therapist on the Tim Ferriss podcast like years ago. <laughs> so I'm like, this lady's a celebrity. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I get on a Zoom call with her and I'm like, oh, Marcella, you're awesome. Like, I've heard about you on this podcast. She's like, oh, stop. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> anyway, she's a really sweet lady. Uh, she owns this clinic with her husband, Bruce, uh, down in Boulder, like I said. And yeah, so I came on board there and they really needed help with this study called the MT1 study. I believe now they're moving into MT2. There's a lot of talk, like things aren't really known where that's at, but it's a therapist training study. Uh, and the protocol is available online, so I can talk about it. But essentially, it's for people that have gone through the MDMA-assisted therapy training and like therapists, and then they want to do the MDMA themselves, which like, of course, is a great idea. You know, I'm a yeah. firm believer in therapists. <laughs> Uh, doing the work themselves and really understanding what the medicine's like. So, uh, so yeah, so that was the protocol. Basically, they fly down, fill out some questionnaires. We paid for the flight and the Airbnb and overnight attendant, all this stuff. And they would come down, do an intake. They do the MDMA. The next day, they do a full-day placebo session, which the full-day placebo is going away on MT2. Yeah, and then they'd pretty much do a closeout session, answer some questionnaires, and yeah, and that was it. So I was really only there for a few months, um, and I saw a couple of participants, and it was really cool. You know, they were super grateful to be a part of the study. It's like every MAPS therapist who goes through the training, I feel like, <laughs> hears about the study, and they're like, I want to be a part of that. Oh, my gosh. And of course, right, you get paid to go and do MDMA and get the full experience and makes you a better therapist. So it's like a very highly sought after thing for, for MAPS therapists. Um, yeah, and I hope they can make it more accessible and that's in the works, I hear. So uh, anyway, so I did that for a few months. Um, at the time, though, I was in my first semester of grad school. So I'm in a master's of addiction counseling psychology program at Colorado State University. Um, and I was taking like 12 credit hours 
and I was reading like 10, 12 hours a week. And I was also like trying to get my own publications. And then two days a week, I'm driving down to Boulder and it's like an hour and a half drive each way and working a full day. Um, and it was just really draining. And I kind of got to this point where I was like, holy crap, I worked so hard to be here. I love this job, you know, I'm doing the work I want to do. But I was like so burnt out. And I was like, well, then why am I doing it? And, uh, you know, I just realized I had enough money to get by and I really like to get to where I wanted to go needed to start getting my own publications, doing my own work. So, so I actually left, um, and Marcella, she was super kind and sweet and, uh, accepting of my situation and still supportive, you know, wanted to continue to support me thereafter. And so, yeah, so I left and then I was just like hanging out in Fort Collins, trying to get my own projects going, you know, at CSU and running my own statistics and writing up another paper. Um, and then I got reached out to by uh, Bree Ben Dixon. She was a study coordinator at the Fort Collins site for years. Uh, and she's really sweet also. Uh, she's actually putting on the Emergence Festival this next weekend, a week from tomorrow, October 1st in Denver, which is a psychedelic education festival. So very exciting. Um, she's really cool. She's a ketamine therapist now, and she's been working as a, an MDMA therapist as well. She reached out to me on behalf of Derek May and Scott Shannon and said, hey, we need an extra study coordinator here like the full-time study coordinator Enrique. He's now my roommate, actually. Uh, super sweet guy. We're good friends. He was just overburdened with all of the enrollment that was happening as the uh, MAP2 main clinical trial was wrapping up its enrollment. We've since closed enrollment. So um, yeah, so he was just really overwhelmed. The screening process is super intense. You know, there's so many like medical and psychiatric procedures that need to occur to enroll somebody. So yeah, so he was just overburdened and I'm like a very detail oriented person. I'm very good with like the data and like making sure everything gets organized. So I came in and helped out with data entry and sort of coordination work and was just helping him out. And uh, yeah, so that was only supposed to last about the spring semester. So pretty much throughout the spring semester of this past year, I was doing that. And then, uh, and then the summer came and I was like, okay, well, it looks like things are closing down. Like I said, they shut enrollment. So that like took out a lot of the work. And then we got audited by the FDA. <laughs> so whoa, yeah, it was a total surprise. We got like, it was like a Thursday and we get a call. Scott got a call, Scott Shannon, got a call from an FDA inspector down in Denver. And she said, I'm gonna be there on Monday. Like I said, this is on like Thursday. She's like, I'll be there on Monday. We're gonna audit your site. And MAPS at this point had not gone through an audit. So they had one that they had heard about through Health Canada uh, that was occurring. And then, yeah, they, they hadn't had like any site level audits. And then they found out, oh, the FDA is coming to Fort Collins, Colorado. <laughs> so it was very intense. Um, shortly thereafter, another site, I believe North Carolina, 
got the notification they were being audited as well. They had like a two-day audit. We had a five-day audit. And then a couple of other sites, New York, and I can't remember the other one, got audited as well. So it was like a big thing. And then Maps as a sponsor also got audited. So all these different sites, and then the sponsor got audited. Health Canada is auditing the Maps Canada. And it was like a whole crazy thing. Um, but yeah, so we just all scrambled. Maps flew down, like four people, including like their highest up people. So like Charlotte Harrison, she's now the director of Pivotal Programs, meaning she basically oversees like all of the phase three and like big clinical trials. She's like, I'm on a plane, guys. I'm coming. And uh, yeah, so she flew down, a bunch of other people, like the head of quality affairs and all their like quality assurance team was there. And basically, Enrique and I worked like a 12 hour day that first day we found out and then basically didn't stop working, including on the weekend for like eight days straight. And it was like, it was just insanity. I mean, I took a day off and Enrique didn't, but it was just like, no time to work out, no time to prep food, like you're getting fast food delivered and like it's just all hands on deck. So so yeah, that happened. It was a super exciting moment. I think a big part of MAPS history. Um, yeah, and then after that, you know, I like I said, I was the backup, like that happened. It was crazy and there's some follow-up stuff. And uh, then things kind of tapered down, and then I was kind of like, oh, well, I don't really know if, like, MAPS continues to need me to work as a backup study coordinator because, you know, really they're in the phase now of finishing everything up and getting ready to submit to the FDA. Uh, so I was like, gosh, what am I going to do? And then lo and behold, <laughs> MindMed steps in and says, hey, we want to do an LSD for anxiety clinical trial at your site, and I wanted to work with LSD, and so I got named study coordinator for that, and I was like, well, MAPS, I feel like I've served my time here, and yeah, now I'm going to step out, and I'm going to step into new things and be the, the MindMed coordinator, so yeah. It sounds awesome. It sounds, you know, when you're in the thick of it, and these things are happening, and there seems to be chaos... And then there seems to be clarity. It's it's almost like a trip in itself, the whole experience of it. But it it, yeah. it seems like in, it seems like total growth though. Like mm -hmm. it, it's amazing to me to envision something and then to see it happen and then to see the next step happen. Like you you come there, you get involved in these things, and it just seems by some magic or some some miracle mm -hmm. or maybe it's some force greater than we can imagine that's kind of guiding it like now you're with mind med and now you're doing this new study from this new yeah. this new perspective there and then so you you've mentioned that you were also involved in some ketamine therapy like what is it it seems like that's all over the news right now like i i listen to people that are beginning these therapies or they're talking about them or they're excited about them and as someone mm -hmm. who's been trained in that therapy, can you run it? Can you run me through what it would be like if I or somebody had anxiety and they wanted to get involved in that and go through that process? Can you take us through that process? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would love to talk about ketamine. Uh, it's super exciting. You know, ketamine is a schedule three, which means it's just a lot easier to use in regular clinical practice. 
and I'm doing some research on it now. And like I said, working on it clinically, I've been trained in it. So, you know, there, there's a lot of different indications it's used for, and there's also a lot of different ways it's used. And kind of going back to the original point about all the different factors are very important in the experience. Well, you know, I don't want to like, you know, tell anybody that I know the exact right way to do it because the jury's still out, but a lot of places will basically just leave you alone in a room set up on an IV and it's like, bring your own music, leave when you want, ring a bell if you need to, but like, it's not very intentional. Also, there are a lot of companies where you can do an online telepsych intake and then do it in your own home. And I think that there's use cases for that, but I think that at-home ketamine is more reserved for the person that's gone through a lot of psychedelic work, a lot of ketamine work, and doesn't necessarily need to go into the clinic anymore. But uh, the way that I've been trained and the way that we do it in Wholeness Center, we use a model called ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And uh, it's a pretty popular model. There's a lot of big names in that. Uh, Raquel Bennett's been very much involved with the design of that, I believe, and Phil Wolfson. Um, yeah, so essentially, if you come to us at Wholeness Center and you wanna do ketamine, uh, we would have you do a psychiatric evaluation. So with one of our psychiatric nurse practitioners or our psychiatrists, you know, you do a full one hour evaluation and then if they deem it safe uh, and you have, you know, the right diagnosis and they'll prescribe the diagnosis and then they'll, yeah, figure out what route of administration to do uh, as well as the dose. Um, and that's sort of done with a lot of different factors in mind, like the person's sensitivity to drugs, certainly their weight and other things. Uh, so we do that, and then either the nurse practitioner or the psychiatrist or another therapist ends up working directly with that person. So in the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy model, uh, we sit with the person while they're on ketamine throughout the whole experience, and they might not like need any support. They might just be lying there for an hour to an hour and a half, and like that's fine. But we've also seen, you know, a lot of people, they want to get up or dance or move around or they need a person or they need their handheld so they'll uh, hang out their hand and we talk about that beforehand and they'll hold their hand for a couple minutes, give them that support. They know that they're there. They know that they're safe. They know that somebody's sitting over and watching them and keeping their body safe because a lot of the times they might leave their body. Um, so we sit there with them through the process. And then, like I said, if they need us, we're there. If not, you know, they just sit there. And then after about an hour to an hour and a half, depending on the route of administration we used, we will sort of arouse them, bring them back into the room, or some therapists just like to let people sort of wake up on their own. Uh, this whole time they've got on an eye mask and they're laying down in a comfortable position they've got headphones on and then we have very specifically curated music there's a lot of good ketamine playlists you can find them on spotify from like prati and also roots to thrive makes really good 
ketamine playlist. So, um, so that, yeah, so there's good ketamine playlists available online and they change depending on the route of administration because the onset of the ketamine changes depending on the route of administration, the bioavailability is different. It may come on faster or slower. So playlists are kind of designed with that in mind, but anyway, so once they're off the ketamine or they're not really off the ketamine, they're just not like completely dissociated. They can like kind of come back into the room and look around and talk. But in my experience doing it, I'm like still like sort of sedated and like, whoa, what's going on? So they come back into the room and then depending on the therapist, there might be another half hour to hour and a half of just sort of unstructured time to process and, uh, and just kind of talk and see what came up for you. Did you see any colors? What was the music like? Uh, and then we, yeah, we do some psychotherapy around that and kind of talk through what happened. And then it changes after that from therapist to therapist. And like I said, there's a lot of just different ways to do it in general, but in the ketamine assisted psychotherapy model, we call it CAP, K-A-P. Uh, we have a follow-up integration session. So a lot of people like therapists, they'll have the psychiatric eval and then the therapist might have three or four sessions of like getting to know them and building rapport. And they'll do one of these ketamine sessions and then they'll have an integration session. And then you just kind of repeat that, you know, the usual numbers around six medicine sessions and then potentially continual follow-up integrations, but it varies depending on what a person needs. Um, so yeah, so they go through that whole process and then usually after about six, most people got what they needed <laughs> and then they can terminate or they can move on to individual counseling or just kind of continue to work through integration. But yeah, so that's sort of the broad, the broad picture of how it works. It's interesting to me, and this is maybe this question is more of a subjective question, but sure. I'm curious to get your thoughts on. Okay. So, so like, let's say, I guess I'm trying to figure out how to quantify the results. Like if somebody comes in for, right. you know, a trauma, say an abuse of some kind, and then they, you know, and this is the subjective part about it. Maybe one person does gestalt therapy and they do it for a, 10 years or six years or four years and someone chooses a different kind of therapy, is there a way to maybe see how the results of ketamine stack up against these other therapies? Or is that just kind of like a subjective mumbo jumbo area that I'm mm. talking about? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, well, I am actually in the early, very, very early phases. Like I kind of just got the idea <laughs> of designing a study um, using individual ketamine therapy and kind of trying to figure that out. I mean, you, you know, you can look at it broadly and consider effect sizes, right? Like how effective is this for one particular indication? And like, we've been running ketamine assisted therapy groups for frontline healthcare workers and first responders. Mm -hmm. And we have good pre post data on anxiety, depression, and PTSD symptoms. And we're seeing huge effect sizes in all of these domains. I've also seen in a couple of participants that had alcohol problems, like a 
pretty much 70% reduction in drinking in their alcohol behaviors. So yeah, there's a lot of different indications. There's a lot of different models. There's a lot of different ways people do the therapy. And it's kind of hard to have a standardized thing or compare it to another therapy or look at one specific condition. But um, yeah, definitely I'm at this point where we are seeing a lot of ketamine clients in, uh, in our practice at a wholeness center. And we have some data, but we don't have like a very structured way of like saying, okay, you go through a six week ketamine protocol um, and the therapist is doing the same sort of therapy and you're coming in for this issue. Like we don't really have it captured that way because as you're alluding to, there's a lot of variability right. in the ways that people practice and what they're coming in for. So I'm sort of at this point where I'm trying to work with somebody um, on track uh, research. I'll give them a shout out. Uh, Chad Walkadin, super great guy. Very inspiring story. Um, kind of been talking to him about maybe designing a research protocol uh, for individual ketamine therapy. And so, you know, it's, it's like very early stages, isn't it happened like a day or two ago that we had the conversation, but this thing has kind of been boiling in my head of like, how do we capture this? Like, how do we figure out, you know, like you're saying, like, how do we compare this to other treatments in the literature? How do we validate it? How do we kind of put enough of a box around it to show that it works for one particular condition? Um, and, you know, there is some other good uh, literature out there. So there's a study published just this past year in the British Journal of Psychiatry, uh, which is a pretty darn good journal. And uh, it was a systematic review of 83 different ketamine studies for various mental health conditions and substance use disorders. And uh, they have a lot of great work and they really go through and kind of describe, okay, depression, what does it look like? suicidality, what does it look like? Substance use disorder, anxiety. And they walk through all these things and they reference some of the studies and they synthesize the results. But, you know, there's definitely a lot of room for more studies. So there's like a good groundwork, but we're trying to look at, okay, what indication do we want to look at and how do we maybe want to design this thing? And then what's come to my attention is also how do we fund it? So... If anybody out there has some money and wants to fund it, that'd be great, which is, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation too. It's, you know, if you're trying to do this in a traditional academic context, you're not going to get federal grants. I mean, mm. if you design it in the right way, if you use the right language, uh, I don't want to say that it's impossible. Matt Johnson got a grant from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Uh, I believe it was for nicotine addiction, but it's been a while since I read about it. But, you know, it's just very hard to get a federal grant to study psychedelics. And that's how a lot of mainstream, mainstream academia functions. But if you look at the funding model for these other academic companies, they take a different approach. So uh, MAPS, for example, has just been an absolute pioneer in private fundraising. And it's just been astounding to see, you know, what Rick Doblin can do with fundraising and just getting interested people on board. Uh, MindMed is a for-profit company, so they have shareholders. And, you know, 
they want to get out data and that's a different model of doing the work but you know yeah i think that more of this work needs to be done where there needs to be systematic studies that are conducted that are well designed to validate the academy treatments to a broader world to standardize the way that it's done and to show its effectiveness within like somewhat of a container um so yeah so hopefully i can do that i still need to pitch it to my employers you know and see what they think and see if we can get this going and so yeah a lot of a lot of exciting stuff happening there yeah that is super exciting and mm-hmm. you know I, I think that what you spoke about is something that the common person like me or someone that's just kind of watching from the outside doesn't understand is how expensive it is to begin a study or to pitch a study or to keep a study going or to get to the next level. Like that's a, that's a whole nother, a whole nother gear in there. And then you can understand how the people that put forth the money may, may have some other ideas of what should be in the study. And then you have the study coordinator. It's, it's interesting to think about another interesting study. I, I was thinking about the other day, I was, I, I was super fortunate, man. I got to talk to Rick Strassman yesterday. That guy's yeah. just a what um, an amazing individual, that, that yeah. a pioneer in in yeah. is it's one of those conversations where you just go, man, I'm talking to a guy who's just I don't mm-hmm. I, I hope I don't sound too silly because he's a million times smarter than me. But anyways, long mm-hmm. story longer, he he had mentioned I had asked him a question like, Do you think therapists that have actually tried and been through psychedelic experiences have had had ketamine experiences or psilocybin or lsd experiences do you think that their level of applying the medicine and therapy to individuals is more effective than those who have never gone through that therapy and he Mm -hmm. said he's not aware of any studies that have ever happened like that but it seems almost obvious to him that it would be that way and it, it just, right. I think you alluded to this earlier. You're a big fan of someone having the experience so they can thoroughly mm. understand what the person's going through. I, can you expand on that a little bit more? Like, I really agree with you. I think it's an important part, but I'd like to hear a little bit more if you can talk about that. Yeah, I would love to. Um, yeah, and Rick Strassman, big fan. I've been reading DMT, The Spirit Molecule. Yeah. And he he gave a talk recently to a student organization at Naropa and I got to kind of pick his brain a little bit and super cool. I love, he's got this chapter called Labyrinth and it's basically just all the different people he had to talk to, all the different agencies, all the different approvals he had to get. And gosh, it's just such a freaking process. And it's (laughs) such a testament to like how difficult it is to like navigate through all the regulatory pathways to do this work, but he really laid the groundwork. Um, And I don't agree with everything he has to say a lot of the time as far as how this all works and the language we're using, but I'll put that to the side for now. (laughs) But um, yeah, no, uh, as far as having the actual experience, I mean, I think the thing is that we don't really understand the psychedelic experience. And like I said, it could vary so much from person to person. And I've been fortunate to have several of my own and try several different medicines, you know, and I'm at a point where I'm willing to like talk about that publicly. I just decided that for myself, but you know, it's just like, it's so hard to read about it. And we form these conceptions 
based on the world we live in, the paradigm we exist in, and just our level of knowledge. And we read all these fascinating, cool stories about different things that are happening. And we project our normal like waking consciousness onto what we think is going to occur. And I mean, even having done so many psychedelic experiences myself, every single time, it's just something that I never could have imagined. And it's just so hard to like put myself in the like, it's going to be like this space. And like I said, I'm somebody who has done these things enough times. Like if I've done LSD 10 times, I think it's going to be like this the next time. And then it happens. <laughs> it's totally different. You know, so it's just like, it's hard to put any of these medicines in a box because they're so subjective, you know, and a lot of the early work in psychology and psychiatry was employing a totally different framework. Like if you look at Jungian uh, psychodynamic work, like it just functions differently. Like the way that he talks about dreams is that if you want to unpack a person's dream, you have to consider all the factors of that person's individual life. You can't just have uh, like a taxonomy of different symbols, which is what Freud wanted to do. So it doesn't really work to say this thing means this, and this thing in the dream means this. It's so, so deeply subjective that you have to understand all the things that are going on in that person's life at the time to then say, okay, well, this meaningful dream occurred. Well, what is it about that dream? Like, what do you think the symbols in the dream mean relative to what's going on in your life? And so I think psychedelics are a lot like that. They're so deeply subjective and interpersonal that each person is gonna have such a different experience depending on so many factors, not to mention that just people are so different and we think so differently. So, I mean, it's just hard to understand what is the nature and the content. And if you try to like do that, like Freud and just write like this in the psychedelic experience means this, it's just not gonna work. So, you know, it's really hard applying our sort of Western uh, paradigm to thinking about psychedelics. And that's a broader conversation that opens a lot of weird doors to thinking about culture and society and yeah. the way that we do things and, you know, how that doesn't quite work for us. Um, but yeah, it's just so hard to put them in a box. But then there's also just something about going there and being like, oh, like you take the medicine and you're like, oh my gosh, like my client is going to be having a crazy experience. Like <laughs> they could be going through all these different things. And like further, I mean, when I did my ketamine training, you get to do two experiential sessions. So you get to do an intramuscular, which is like often very dissociative, very psychedelic. And you also get to do an oral. And the oral session, the way that I was trained on it can sometimes be psycholytic. So it's more like maybe you could get up and talk if you wanted to, or maybe you don't completely dissociate, but you're experiencing some things. So when I did the ketamine training, I decided for myself, I want to do my oral session at a little bit lower dose 
because I want to put myself in the mindset of the person who's not having a full-blown psychedelic experience, but somebody that actually gets up and walks around or like is kind of like, oh, what's happening? Like, I don't really feel like much is going on here. Like I'm laying here, I'm thinking things. Um, but yeah, so I did a 200, I believe it was 200 milligram oral dose. And then after like 30 minutes, I got up and went to the bathroom and after 45, which normally is like, you know, the peak of the experience. I like told my uh, sitter, Jorge, I said, hey man, like I wanna get up and I wanna sit outside and talk. And so we just got up and we talked. But like my IM session, I was blasted. I mean, just out there in space. <laughs> there was, it was just an experience that was unfolding in front of me. And I was like deep in my like little pad that I had set up. And it was just like deeply immersive, deeply psychedelic. And it was like, there's no way I would have been able to get up. <laughs> and so, you know, people can have such a range of different experiences on different medicines and on different doses. And just the only way that you can even try to understand what they might be going through is to have the medicine yourself. And, you know, I wouldn't suggest anybody go and do underground experiences. And I don't want to like put off that, you know, I don't want to sound like that's what I'm suggesting. I'm not saying that that's the way to do it, but I am saying that like having the experiences is very helpful also to show the client or to just to be with the client, you know, just to be present and to maybe sort to sort of start to understand what it is that they might be going through. Yeah. It's, it, it seems to me obvious. Like if, if you're going to be a firefighter, you train with a firefighter, like the captain is the guy who's been through the most fires or the chief of the police. He's mm -hmm. been through all these things. And, it just seems to me that you would, if you are going in for an experience, then you would want to be with someone who's had that experience and that can help you deal with the experience. And I think some of the mm -hmm. early LSD studies, you know, in the beginning, I think that there were some people that looked at it like, okay, I'm going to take this so that I can thoroughly understand what it's like to be in a different reality or in the, and the idea was mm -hmm. I would like to be in the mind of someone who is not crazy, but in the mind that has a mental deficiency. And, and in some right. levels, yeah, in some levels, like I've had some interesting, interesting out there trips on psilocybin where I totally thought the world around me was completely different than the one I was in, you know? And I, it was, it was like just night and day. And then when I kind of came back to it, I was like, wow, this must be how some people feel that we're totally disassociated with the world. And, and then all of a sudden there was an empathy there. Like, oh, I get it. Like, I, mm -hmm. I get how you could really believe this thing that's not happening is happening. And it kind of, it can create a bridge there for two people to talk about. And it's so therapeutic to have somebody in the room with you that not only understands, but believes in you. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I actually wrote a poem. I, I write nice. poetry. Beautiful. Among the other things I do. Um, sort of to, to capture this and to ease anxiety around our, uh, our participants and our ketamine groups. And I had the realization I was down in Marble Falls, Texas, uh, kind of random, but I went on a cave tour. 
Oh, nice. And, and you have, you know, on a guided cave tour, you have a guide, right? And this is a person that's into caves. They like caves enough. They want to work with caves. They've decided to make their life and their work like caves. And to me, caves are like the earth's kind of subconscious, you know, you're navigating the subconscious nice. of the earth. So I was walking through this cave with like, it was just, uh, I was by myself and there was like a family with like two little kids and like a daughter and probably a grandma and our cave guide. And I was like, okay, we're a small little group. We don't know this cave, but we're all exploring it. And the cave guide is just here to walk us through this journey and to keep us safe, to say, hey, keep your head low here. Like if somebody freaks out, they can, they're holding the light, but like we're all there having our own experience of like exploring the cave. Right. And I just realized this is just like our psychedelic groups. Like we are like this cave guy. We're psychedelics people. We dedicate our time to understanding these things. Not everybody does. I mean, a lot of people don't, and they're not going to know. They're not going to know all the nuances, what's safe, what's not, how to do this. So they rely on us to be their guide. Um, and we guide these groups through their own subconscious exploration on these psychedelics. So anyway, I was just inspired by that. And, and I wrote the poem to, uh, to basically calm participants nerves if they were about to go into their ketamine session and just to let them know like, Hey, we've done this too, you know, and we know what it's like and we'll be here and you're going to come out the other side. Okay. Um, so I shared that online on uh, the Big Tent Ketamine group and my partner has used it in her individual ketamine sessions and we used it in one of our groups and yeah, people have definitely given good feedback and it kind of eases them yeah, just to know, you know, we've gone through this experience too and we know the medicine and we can kind of, you know, be there for you throughout this. Yeah. It's been my it's been my experience that people that write things and are proud of them can often remember at least a little bit of them. Would you be so kind as to maybe share a little bit of the poem with us? Yeah, I can read it for you right now. Yeah, actually, absolutely. <laughs> I would love that, man. Thank you. I, I was wondering if you would ask. Let me see. Yeah, of course. Okay. All right, I found it. Okay, yeah, and it's relatively short. Okay, it's called I'll Be Your Guide. Here we enter into the depths of dark caverns. Inside we find the unfolding of old patterns, a soul's journey into the unconscious mind. Who knows what we may find inside? Letting go, easing into the process, removing all the gripping of conscious. We guide you now into places unknown. No fears are needed where you will go. We too have been down there explorers of the psychedelic fair come back we did back into life freed of the trappings of our minds <laughs> nice i like it man yeah. i i'm gonna um did you post it have you posted it somewhere so people that might want to have it and read it can 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 they get a copy of that maybe you could post it on linkedin or somewhere or i could post it in the show notes or something yeah yeah i think i i probably posted it on linkedin at one okay. point in time uh i think fluence or maybe it was polaris i think it was polaris they like were requesting people to submit ketamine poems and i think i submitted that one but yeah i can either send it to you or post it on linkedin again and 
just let people know, hey, if you want to use it, you can. I think it's a good sort of settling in poem because I had a lot of anxiety before my first intramuscular ketamine session. I was like, oh God, I thought I would be good. I thought I'd be comfortable. It's like, I've done a lot of psychedelics. I'm fine. It's just ketamine. And then I was like, holy crap, I'm nervous. Um, and so funny, I went out for a walk behind Hole in the Center. We have like a great little creek and natural area. And I was feeling all these nerves. And then I looked down and I saw like a newborn baby deer. And it was just like adorable and had all the little spots on it. And it was just laying there like this in the grass. And it let me walk right up to it like five feet away. And I took a picture and it was just so amazing and it just calmed me down and sort of centered me in but I was like gosh I think our participants need something a little grounding and reassuring you know to to make them feel comfortable as they go into the experience so yeah so that was kind of the inspiration along with the cave thing you know it's like oh like this all makes sense <laughs> yeah yeah it's almost that brings me to another point that's that's beautiful and I I often think that nature is a language that we try and decipher without using words. It's, it's, there's mm -hmm. the same way that something beautiful comes in our life and we can't really describe it. Like language fails. Not only does language fail there, but it seems like language fails at high dose psychedelic trips. Like there's yeah. just, there's just no words you could describe it but you can't really explain it you could say stuff like you know it's it there's there's no colors or there's no words but <clears throat> you can't it's very difficult to thoroughly explain mm. something like that and i often i often wonder if that is if if that is because we're processing it in a different part of the brain or and, and that gets me back to your poetry. Like maybe the language, the maybe the language for explaining things that are beautiful should be written in poetry. Maybe, maybe poetry is a true form of communication. Cause when you think about poetry, you think of like, sometimes you're getting goosebumps or someone getting flush in their face, but you can mm -hmm. see the reaction in the body with the words that you use. And I think that those things are tied. What do you, yeah. what do you think about that? Is that possible? Yeah, no, so much to say there too. Uh, <laughs> you're asking all the great questions. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as nature, you're totally right. I mean, my, my philosophy on nature in general and psychedelic usage is that psychedelics should be done in nature. Um, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about that and potential career aspirations around, you know, facilitating that in nature and I hike all the time you know living in Colorado and nature is very close to my heart um and there is just like a subtlety and an art and a beauty to all of what nature provides you know and that's how we live for so long like I'm reading a book right now called Black Elk Speaks oh a great book and, oh man so I don't want to diverge too far from the point here but the psychiatrist I work with uh, she does a lot of the work on the LSD study with me as well, uh, Kylie House. She's really sweet. And her uncle is Wesley Black Elk, one of the grandchildren mm. of wow. Black Elk. And wow. so I got to do a sweat lodge with this guy. No was, way! Yeah. 
Yeah, it was a beautiful ceremony and he's a true medicine man. And as I'm reading Black Health Speaks, it's just like so powerful, you know, the way that they lived and interacted with nature and then the white man mentality. And it's so funny, like I was reading this morning and they said, they call the white man Wasichus. And they said the white man came into the land and like after they'd already formed this tree that the white man would stay away because of the yellow metal in the hills. And I'm like, wait, yellow metal, they mean gold. So to them, they were like, we have this yellow metal and it's useless. And then uh, to the white man, it's like, oh, it's gold. So we're gonna come in and kill everybody and take the gold. But <laughs> to the Native Americans, it's like, oh, well, whatever. It's just some useless yellow metal. Um, so just very interesting, you know, the way that they lived and interacted in nature in this sort of raw way. Um, and yeah, as far as poetry goes, I find that it captures something so much deeper and powerful. Like I wrote a really awesome poem after, um, after that intramuscular session where I saw the deer. And it just captured all these, I think, subtle elements. And the way I write poetry a lot of the times, I just sort of space out, I guess, and just write whatever comes to me. I kind of let it flow. And it's often got this, you know, just natural emergent quality. And the way that the words come together makes it so that it's deeper than just if I'm just like writing something down in general, you know, it's capturing something deeper. And uh, I sort of sometimes it's like, I don't know, people are trying to be so deep with poetry and that's when it's not good. <laughs> but it, so I don't know, I think just like stepping away and just letting it unfold, it's like you just kind of let this thing emerge and you try to use the words that you have to capture the essence of like whatever it is but you know sometimes it's just beyond what we can communicate so yeah yeah it's sometimes i i think back to the classics like you know the iliad or the odyssey or you know all these all these works were poetic in nature and they were all recited like not written down and i i have so many awesome books that i love but sometimes i wonder if just the act of writing stuff down has muddied the waters so much because you know translation mm -hmm. means interpretation and all of a sudden this thing that was written down so long ago it can have a totally different meaning than was was originally meant for it's 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 wild to think about yeah right you mean like as it's passed down through language it sort of has its own life and as we try to write it down and translate like the essence of it kind of gets lost yeah like it, it seems to me that there's a lot of traditions where people would have to memorize like the quran or they would have to memorize the great works right. and part of finishing your education was you being able to recite this work of art and what happens to when you can when mm. you can memorize a thousand pages and recite this beautiful poetic work what else is going on in your brain like what else have you developed inside your mind when you've developed the ability to do that haven't you also developed some sort of ability to see the world differently when you can do that there's probably other right. things that go along with that and it seems to me that writing stuff down 
has caused sort of an atrophy. And I, I, the reason I bring it up is I think that psychedelics taps back into that. It, it taps back into mm. this world that we've gotten away from. Yeah. Well, I think as we like knowing something at an expert level, like I've seen this with Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I've seen mm. it with yoga. It's like you can do it at like a very amateur level or you can, somebody can tell you what to do and you can kind of do it and you're not going to do it great. But the level of knowledge that it takes, like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, it's minimum 10 years or like a very advanced yoga teacher, like they embody so much of the knowledge that they know how to do it at this sort of crystalline level. And they know all the little nuances of every little thing and they can explain that and tell it in full detail. But as I'm sure you're aware, you just like sometimes like knowing how to do something and knowing how to explain it in detail is totally different. So I think that you reach a depth of knowledge with the memorization where you have to understand like what it means, not just the words, you know, but really what does it mean? Like, cause maybe when you retell the story, if it's memorized, it's not just like, you're not just reciting the words, you're understanding the deep meaning of these things to be able to retell it. And the words are going to change a little bit, but that's not what matters as much as the meaning behind what you're trying to say. And so the meaning of the thing is preserved throughout retelling, you know, the story you're having it memorized in a way that like, if you just write something down, it can easily get like just handed off or I can reference whatever my Quran or Bible or whatever that happens to be. And yeah, and you don't understand it at that full level of depth. See, that 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 takes us back to the full circle, back to the individual therapist who has experience in what it is they're teaching, whether it's the the feeling of ketamine or the feeling of psilocybin and on that note if 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 we look at psychedelic therapy as a as a discipline do you see ketamine therapy being wholly different from psilocybin therapy well i think this is one of the things that i've sort of learned from my mentor and boss scott shannon awesome guy. He's the CEO of the Board of Psychedelic and Medicines and Therapies. And he's trying to establish this gold standard board certification model for how we can get insurance to reimburse these things. And also how we keep the training like at a level of quality and that we're really doing it the right way. And his stance is that there's a therapeutic container that is sort of generalizable, but that the medicines are different, but that there's a general sort of therapeutic container that needs to be there and that you need to hold as a therapist or a facilitator, and that you can kind of put the medicines into that. And I think that's kind of like, you know, again, understanding the subtleties. And when you have a deep level of knowledge, you understand the subtle differences between these different medicines or how they're going to work. Like ketamine is very dissociative and MDMA is very empathic and sort of embodied and it doesn't put you in this weird headspace. It really calms you down and makes you active and say, okay, well, like I'm here and these people care about me, hopefully. 
And uh, so there's differences, you know, there's differences in the medicines and the way that they work and the way that they feel, you know, there's kind of a spirit to each of the medicines. But the generalizable component, I think, is the, the therapeutic container, which has those elements of what is your past history? What's your relationship with the person that you're sitting with? What's the context that you're doing it in? Are you locked in a cage or are you in nature, you know? So I think the container is a thing that, you know, we can sort of generalize and say needs to occur. Uh, and But the medicines differ, but most of them can be put in the general psychedelic container as a start. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh, as, as someone like yourself who has, has a an amazing background in, in, in being part of the new things that are happening and a background in psychology and a very awesome person that has a lot of empathy. I, I don't thoroughly, uh, yeah, you're an awesome person. Man. I'm, I'm enjoying the conversation. So thank it's you. very kind. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. I, um, I wonder like, you know, you can look at the DSM five and you see all these different kinds of conditions. And I think that someone who is a psychologist may be able to look at different conditions and understand different medicines for those conditions. And I'm wondering if, if, if in the future that like I, I you've kind of answered this, but I'm wondering if in the future the different therapies will be paired with different types of illnesses. Well, yeah, it's hard to say. You know, it's hard yeah. to say. I mean, there, yeah. I mean, and just to kind of get into the meta conversation about diagnosis, I mean, it's yeah. it's hard because there are these different symptoms that you do see manifest in these different disorders, you know? And I mean, this is the reason why you need, you know, high level degrees to be able to make diagnoses yeah. because there are subtleties, right? And so you can't just obviously put everybody in a box and say, okay, right. you've just got this disorder or whatever, and like, you just need this. There's so much individual nuance and complexity to each person. But, you know, at the same time, like if you're seeing the same manifestation of symptoms like the anhedonia and depression or like craving and withdrawal in addiction, you know, you can start to come up with like, okay, this is a thing that we can kind of put a label on. But then it's hard to say, okay, well, this medicine for this condition, because that hasn't really worked either, right? And, uh, and I think just at a broader level, so much of clinical uh, sort of issues are also a result of our culture. And so it's really hard by the time you see your psychiatrist or your psychologist or your therapist and you just say, okay, I'm manifesting these symptoms. And then you get a prescription for a medicine or a certain type of evidence-based therapy or whatever well, maybe it's the culture and the person's life history and all of the interactions in their day-to-day -day life that are all sort of coalescing to impact that manifestation of symptoms. And so by the time they get to the office, it's like they've already lived a whole life of all of these things that maybe are causing the condition. So it's hard to kind of have the Band-Aid approach and say, okay, well, I know this medicine checks off this symptom, but then what else is going on? Like, what is the deeper issue here? 
like I don't have depression at all, but I've had a like diagnosable depressive episode before. And I talked to my boss, who is a psychologist, about it. And she said, well, maybe you should get on an antidepressant. But the thing was, the reason I was depressed was because of her and my work situation. <laughs> so <laughs> I was depressed because I was being mistreated at work. And then I wasn't being taken care of. And <clears throat> people were putting me down. So like the solution was I needed to get out of that job. Yeah. <laughs> Not like I needed a prescription to fix this. Um, and I did get out of that job and now I'm doing a lot better. But it's like, you know what I mean? There's so much that like plays into like by the time you get there and you're manifesting the symptoms that it's so baked in uh, the way that we do things as a culture, which I think is why there's so much widespread mental and physical illness. You know, so there's all those things going on. So it's just hard to like, I don't know, look at a problem of a manifestation of a mental illness and fix it with a culture that is, you know, problematic in general. Yeah, this brings us back to the ideas of antidepressants and psilocybin. I, I think what you mm -hmm. said about sometimes it seems like antidepressants just allow you to stay in a situation that's depressing. And make sure you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like whether it's just releasing neurotransmitters to make you feel better, even though you haven't removed yourself from the situation where on, on like a good psychedelic trip, you can come to the realization that, Hey, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, what am I doing? Right. I, I got to get out of here. This is what's making me sad. Whereas the antidepressant right. is like, you wake up, you're like, okay, let me just, where's my, where's my pill? Okay. I feel better. Now I can go do this thing that deep down, I don't want to do and it's manifesting horrible things in my life like and that, maybe maybe that is what we've saw happen at ICPR 2022 is we saw that in a now we have an infographic that proves that you know it's it's and, and getting back to culture it's fascinating to me to see the way in which psychedelics are showing us the problems of our culture you know, it's yeah. when we talk about an awakening, it's it's us coming to the idea that what we're doing kind of sucks in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting, you know, as I mentioned with the Lakota tribe and being a part of the sweat lodge and reading about all that and the psychedelics, you know, it's just like you really see how are these people living and they were in close harmony with nature or like a video I posted on LinkedIn the other day. Uh, it, was, it was like this Australian tribe and they were like, we were all healthy and like, we would just like hunt and eat seeds and like everything was good and we'd run around naked. And then the white man came in and then they started giving us cakes and they started giving us sugar and tea and like all these different things. And they're like, and then suddenly everybody got sick and like a bunch of people died, like old people died. And then they built a hospital. And then it's like, okay, well now they're feeding them this thing and now they've got this hospital. And then that's just this like cycle and they didn't need them there in the first place. And then uh, the lady who was talking, she was like, well, my like blood sugar was through the roof. I was super sick. And then I realized oh, I was probably eating too much like cakes and sweets. And, uh, and so I started going back to the way that I was eating and then it dropped again and then I was healthy. Um, but yeah, and in the Native American culture, it's just like, well, they were 
all doing fine. They didn't want to fight. They were living in harmony with nature. And then there's this Wasichus that moved in and there's gold and they want to take everything. They want to take the land. They want to take the money, you know, and even in my own family's history, uh, you know, like six generations up the line, uh, my family was a part of the signing of the Treaty of New Akota, which was to forcibly remove the Cherokee people down the Trail of Tears uh, to present-day Tahlequah, o Oklahoma, and that's because there was gold in Georgia. And so a small subset of these uh, people that were acting on behalf of the Cherokee tribes signed this treaty saying, okay, well, the people that didn't want to go down the Trail of Tears, now you can force us to go. And then I had family members that were murdered by Cherokees under blood law because they said, oh, well, that's, you know, that's not cool. You acted against the behalf of the majority. Now we're allowed to kill you. But it's just like, you know, it's just like a very sad history of this mentality of like, we need the gold. We need more, we need to keep growing. And then we never question what's the direction we're growing in because we grow in this direction of business and finance and like partying and I don't know, just like living in suburban homes. It's just like the way that our culture has ingrained in us this mentality of like, this is what your life should look like. And we never think that, well, maybe the way that we should grow isn't towards just getting richer in like finance, but getting richer in experience and relationships and sort of growing this way of being more interconnected with nature and the people around us and communities. And I don't know, I just think that our culture has sort of overran itself with technology and that we still need to grow, but we need to grow in more conscious connection with other people. You know, and that's what the psychedelics have really shown me. And that's really my intention with them and to use them is to show people conscious connection with others and nature and to see the sickness that is manifest in our culture now and see how we can start to change that and grow in a better direction. Yeah, I like that. That's really well said. I, It's, yeah. it's interesting to think about you know, when I, when I think of about mushrooms, I think about mycelium and the way it grows underneath the ground and it connects mm -hmm. the root structures and moves the nutrients and heals things. And it, it literally mm. grows and brings things together. And it seems to me that psychedelics, specifically psilocybin, seem to do the same thing for people. Like, you know, you can really get together with somebody. Like the conversation we're having now, it's like, oh yeah, I get it. I like what this guy's saying. And it, it seems to me that the, the mushrooms have the same type of properties they do for the trees and the plants as they do for people and it just reinforces the idea that mm. you didn't come into this world you kind of came out of it and you're part mm. of it and and you're you're part of this ecosystem and that brings me to the idea of you know i'm not sure if this was in black elk speaks or i i read it somewhere else but there was a passage i read and it was this in American Indian and he, and he he had said something to the to the effect of when the white man came to us and said he wanted to buy the land we laughed at him because we said no one can buy the land the land belongs right. to everybody and I was speaking with this a gentleman named mm -hmm. Dan Hawk who is a who is a a Native American and, and and I asked him I said doesn't it kind of sound like the same thing like right now they want to come to us and say 
We're going to buy the carbon. We're going to buy the air you breathe. And I think you can't buy the air. The air belongs to everybody. But if you mm -hmm. look at what's happening, like, like the idea of them charging you to breathe is really no different than them buying the land in a weird sort of way. When you monetize this, this idea, like it's just this, it's so crazy to me to, to think right. that they could, but, but why would it be? They bought the land. They took the land from everybody. Why not take the air from everybody? It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, everything becomes monetized. And yes. We're trying to pull out the value of everything. And then <laughs> yes. greedy people take all of it and they send it to the top and they leave a wake of destruction and death, you know, and this was one of the things on my recent LSD experience. It was just like, we just leave a wake of destruction in our paths and our ignorance, you know, and, we just don't realize, but we've also just been fed this narrative and this value structure that's based around financial wealth and not recognizing that what wealth really means, at least to me, is like wealth of relationships and happiness in your life that comes from living in right relationship with the people around you and with nature and in harmony with the world and communities. And, you know, I just think it's so sad, you know, the way that advertising and the media has like sort of just ingrained all these ideas in, of, in us about like, this is what we should be striving towards. This is what this should look like. And then we see this widespread sickness, you know, this widespread overusage of alcohol and other, you know, harmful things. And just these, all these mental health symptoms, all these physical symptoms, you know, diabetes, heart conditions, obesity. It's just like, we're not like living in right relationship with ourselves and the world around us. And it's like, I don't want to like blame anybody, but it's just like a cultural thing that needs to change. You know? Yeah. I, you know, it, it brings up this idea of all this Huxley to me, like, you know, yeah. first off, like, thank you for everybody who hasn't read The Island. You should take Cole uh, Butler's advice and read The Island. That's my favorite book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Isn't it weird how, like, he wrote Brave New World and then he wrote The Island. Like, do you think that mm -hmm. The Island, like, are those two ways people could live? I mean, like, they're, they're pretty distinct, you know? Yeah. Island's my favorite book. I've read it twice. <laughs> <laughs> Aldous Huxley, favorite author, amazing. I've read several of his works, including Brave New World. That's interesting, you know, to put him in context because he wrote Brave New World in the 1930s. And, you know, it was focused on Soma and this sort of control and the differentiation between the savage mentality and the civilized mentality. And you come to see the benefits and the negatives of both like the savage mentality as he lays it out in the book it's not some ideal thing but he wrote island like 30 years later in the early 1960s right before he died like it was either his last book or like one of his last books but um what he describes in there is it's like let's take all the best elements from western culture and eastern culture and that goes into how this island was designed. It's like there was two people that came together, like this Eastern guru that needed this medical condition fixed from this Western doctor. And they met and formed this relationship. And then they came to grow this culture 
and I don't even want to use the word utopia because that sounds like right. something's wrong and it's just like some <laughs> unrealistic idealized world. But that they figured out, you know, how to have a good society. And I love in the novel how the quest for the oil underneath the island is sort of undercutting the greatness that they've achieved. It's like they finally got to this, you know, area of like having a well-structured uh, civilization where people are living in community and are healthy and all these things. And then there's still this desire to drill out all the oil from underneath the island and turn it into this military industrial thing. So very fascinating, you know, yeah, I think Huxley was onto something there for sure. Yeah. I like how he had like, you know, you think of the idea of Soma and then you think of like the Bhagavad Gita or, or like the myths yeah. that come from that side and they talk about Soma. And then you, mm -hmm. you talk, and then in the island, he's talking about mushrooms and ceremonies. And then mm -hmm. even, even in Brave New World, the guys at the end, the people that have dangerous ideas, they mm -hmm. end up going to an island. You know, I, I, I wish he was alive. I would love to see, uh, like, right. I see so many, <laughs> I see, I know, I see so many strands that kind of connect everything mm -hmm. together there and and um cole butler I'm, I'm having an absolute blast i are you doing okay on time or you got some stuff coming up yeah uh my partner's coming over at some okay. point i've got a call in an hour okay um okay. and then later i'm going to red rocks to see big gigantic one of the benefits of living here in colorado is having red rocks amphitheater an hour and a half away so just gonna awesome. get ready and leave pick up a friend and we can go see that later, but yeah, I should I should probably wrap it up and take care of a few other things around here. But yeah, this is really really fun, and I I really appreciate you taking time to do it, and I'm I'm hopeful we can do it again. But before we go, what yeah. do you have coming up? Where can people find you, and what are you excited about? Absolutely, what do I have coming up for the LSD study? <laughs> if you're in nice. Colorado, you have anxiety. Um, please feel free to reach out. Uh, yeah. I mean, the mm. thing is that, you know, you can't have done a psychedelic in the past two years or more than 10 lifetime uses. So it's kind of funny that, you know, the people that are going to be most excited probably are, aren't going to be eligible, but you know, that's the main thing um, in the sort of early talks about our retreat center. Uh, hopefully that can come about. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Proposition 122, the Natural Medicine Health Act um, in Colorado. If you're a Colorado resident, Colorado voter, please vote on the upcoming ballot in November. That would allow uh, safe, regulated access to psilocybin and also to grow it in your own home, to do it in your own home, to give it freely to consenting, well, consenting adults. If you're an adult, you can do it. And eventually DMT, ibogaine, and mescaline, if everything goes well with psilocybin. So, you know, I, I won't say too much more on that because it's only sort of a dream right now, but I'd say the pieces are coming together, hopefully for a retreat center to happen. Um, we'll see, we'll see. Uh, that's kind of dependent on the Natural Medicines Health Act, um, polling at 60% right now. Those are kind of some of the forward-looking things. Hopefully we can get a ketamine research study going. 
um, applied to a grant to get ketamine-assisted therapy groups funded, looking for some private funding for that, feeling promising. I submitted that grant like Monday, I think. So hopefully we can get all that going. Um, people can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I would like to sort of, you know, spread my platforms. I jumped off of a lot of the traditional social media and thinking about maybe doing a YouTube channel, maybe a podcast. I don't know yet. I've got to see where my time's at. Uh, I'd like to post more. I found LinkedIn is a really good platform for some of the ideas that I have and, you know, connecting with people like here, you know, like this happened. So that's been really powerful. So right now, just find me on LinkedIn, Cole Butler. Um, otherwise, yeah, what am I excited about? Just life. Yeah. <laughs> Life's been really awesome. I've been very blessed. Um, I've been really well taken care of and received by this psychedelic community. Um, yeah, a lot of exciting projects in the works. Hopefully we can give people psychedelics legally and safely in nature and change the world a little bit. <laughs> yeah, man, that's, that's really awesome. And I, I want to say thank you to, for all the hard work you're doing. And I'm glad people like you are out there on the forefront thank pioneering you. new things. And I really hope that people reach out to you and, and can become, inspired by you or hopefully maybe they can help you in some ways. And, and that's my, my hope. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's been cool. You know, people reach out to me on LinkedIn. Sometimes I feel like I don't know anything, you know, I'm still pretty young and pretty new to the space, but people reach out and ask for advice and then they'll wonder about regulations or things. And I'll be like, Oh, I actually do know this. So <laughs> there've been a lot of like informal sort of conversations, been able to help some people out and, you know, at first I was kind of like, ah, this is a lot of time and my time is sort of precious right now. So it's hard to like dedicate that to people, but it's also very rewarding, you know, like knowing that I can help somebody out and not ask for money or anything like that. I don't want money. Um, so yeah, it's super exciting. Thank you so much, George, for having me on. I'm honored that you would even think of me or find me worthy of talking to and it's been a super interesting conversation and I can tell we have a lot of similar interests. And so, yeah, I just appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, pleasure's all mine, my friend. And um, so hang on one sec. I'm going to end the broadcast, but okay. I wanted to talk to you for one more moment. Okay. Hey, alo aloha, good. ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much aloha. for spending time yeah. with me and Cole. Thank you. Okay.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.